Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Valoris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Principal Analyst Lee Sustar to discuss the future of cloud. Welcome, Lee. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Lee, I love all the bold calls in this report, including the idea that the future of cloud is built on Kubernetes. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, Kubernetes is an interesting technology. It comes out of Google, uh, what they did internally. They called it Borg. There were some other elements of it. And they brought it out into open source around 2015. They got some buy-in from Red Hat prior to its being acquired by IBM. Then Microsoft came on board. And from there, it got a lot of momentum. And the idea was that the core cloud infrastructure was going to be commodified on open source software. And then the differentiating elements among the various competitors would be built out from there. And the idea was to create a platform of infrastructure that could run basically on any cloud and actually on the data center as well. And it's on that basis that the future of cloud can be uh, built on Kubernetes because it starts to transcend what individual clouds can offer and to become something that you can shape yourself. So all the hyperscalers are on board with it and everybody agreed that that was the model, which is commodify the basic infrastructure services so that they could create differentiation for more value-added services. Right. And the the key here was that the initial movers here was everybody in the cloud space was not AWS. AWS made the public cloud market uh, beyond what had existed previously when things like Salesforce and software as a service, starting around 2007. And five, eight years later, uh, their other big tech competitors realized that this was going to be the way things are going to go. And they needed to catch up in a hurry. So it was in their interest to collaborate around open source in order to scale out in a hurry to then be able to move out into the enterprise at scale. And of course, Microsoft had a decades-long incumbency in the enterprise, so they could work from that. Google uh, had a a bigger threshold to cross there because they had been, uh, through search and advertising, uh, had focused their emphasis differently. So for them, it was a way into the cloud enterprise computing market. AWS significantly in 2017 announced Elastic Kubernetes Service, which was their contribution to this effort. And since then, they've been deeply involved in this effort as well and kind of accepted, uh, despite there being other more AWS proprietary ways of doing things, that this is going to be fundamental to cloud computing going forward. Okay, so even they have accepted it. So now you have all of the hyperscalers and any other kind of major cloud platform providers all on board with it. Absolutely. And it's for that reason become a default standard. And along with this effort, you saw players that emerged, you know, much smaller, typically, uh, with the exception of Red Hat, to move in uh, what Forrester calls the multi-cloud container platform market. And those are organizations which start with a Kubernetes uh, distribution and build a, a kind of a platform element on top of that for both operators and extensions for developers. And the premise there is that they will allow someone to target a platform uh, based on any particular cloud and adapt with that. VMware has their own offering with with Tanzu in addition to their heritage uh, vSphere offerings. So that multi-cloud container platform wave was the first step towards an abstraction from what the underlying cloud providers um, provide. Now, typically that's going to rest on one of these stacks or another. You might buy a Red Hat uh, in order to run on different clouds. In fact, AWS and Microsoft do sell Red Hat OpenShift as a managed service. 
Um, but the cloud providers themselves are building out their Kubernetes-based platforms, which allow you to kind of curate and develop your own platform, another precursor to composability, which we see emerging. So if we play all this out and we know from our own data that most, most of our clients are hybrid, right? So they've got workloads that are on-prem, they've got workloads in the cloud, and we know they're multi-cloud. So it's not like they've necessarily defaulted on a single provider. They often have at least two, maybe even more. So in a world where we know everyone or the majority of people are going to be both hybrid and multi-cloud, uh, Kubernetes just frees the enterprise to be able to move workloads wherever you want across cloud providers, back to your own-prem, back to the cloud. It, you know, Are you free now from vendor lock-in? Does this sort of erase the vendor lock-in concerns that you some clients had with, with the cloud? Partially. You know, it does. So you'll see the big financial services companies where risk concentration, vendor risk concentration is a major concern, decide that, you know, we're not, we're going to be in all cloud providers, but we want to target platform. We'll either build it ourselves. And we see that pattern, like some of the tech forward financial service agency uh, companies will build out their own platforms. And we'll see people target uh, one of these multi-cloud container platforms and say, this is our target. We'll do it this way. In some cases, they'll round out what they have from the public cloud players, uh, managed uh, Kubernetes control planes, it's called the base, the basis of, of Kubernetes from the public cloud. And they'll kind of curate that with some uh, smaller players, uh, software as a service vendors and so on, and sort of take control of their own stack, their own operator platform, if you will. Interestingly, you also see uh, SAP business technology platform, which is their cloud offering and Salesforce Hyperforce which is their uh, platform that runs on top of AWS and, and Microsoft stepping into this as well. So you have your own Kubernetes and uh, integration development environment from the Salesforce or SAP also. And interestingly, Salesforce doesn't allow its customers to choose whether they're going to run on AWS or Azure. They choose based on what region you want to run in. Um, SAP has the hyperscalers competing with one another through their uh, RISE program, which is basically packaged hosting for SAP workloads, which you know puts SAP in the driver's seat in terms of those higher value services further up the stack. So the disintermation is coming, not just from those containerized applications on Kubernetes, which can be moved uh, with you know greater or lesser difficulty, but also an entire platform or platform components, which are now layering on top of the public cloud. So that's why I talk about composability, because the elements of that are already present. So that's kind of the the abstraction layer that you talked to. So now you've got independence from the infrastructure. You've got this composability. And the, the last big call was about intelligence. So t- talk to us a little bit about it, the intelligence aspect of this. Yeah, that's that's a, uh, a great point because when you talk about AI in the cloud, you, you know, to borrow the phrase from AWS, you know, there's, there's the AI in the cloud, which is, okay, where am I going to get my GPUs and train my models and so forth? But there's also the AI of the cloud which is an increasingly um, automated AI-driven platform operations, which is emerging. Now, some of that the customers aren't exposed to. It's, it, you, you see it in the ways in which uh, different cloud providers are rolling it out. Um, and, and it's more automation at this stage than AI. I mean, you're not seeing necessarily um, you know, big decisioning being, being built on that, but we're on the cusp of that. And uh, Google, for example, has... Uh, keeps layering on more and more automation on its managed Kubernetes platforms. Essentially, they're taking things further up the stack. So the customer will have a choice about whether they want to consume uh, a a partial platform and build out themselves, or in the case of a managed multi-cloud container platform, 
might choose to just buy that ready-made and rely on that underlying cloud infrastructure automation to let someone else kind of worry about those integrations. So the intelligence is there in two, in two senses. Kubernetes comes back into the picture because Kubernetes plays a role in uh, standing up model ops at scale uh, because Kubernetes is essentially a, a platform uh, for platforms. A lot of infrastructure people might think of, you know, getting to Kubernetes and getting that mature is, is the end, but it's really just the beginning because you have a, a, a platform for platforms in multiple different directions. And of course, AI is getting uh, the lion's share of the attention right now. So on the one hand, all of this automation would counter the need for deep technical skills and knowledge in the individual platforms. But then it also seems like, to me, based on what you've said, it also introduces a layer of complexity for a lot of organizations as well. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's true in the sense that the platform teams are being increasingly asked to assimilate all this technology, you know, m mediate all this variation. You know, there's there's a, it's kind of a truism. You know, Forrester talks about it, everybody talks about it. Like let's let's lower the cognitive load on the developer. Well, the cognitive load is going to go somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's, landing, it's landing with the platform teams because they now have to be able to service developers with highly varied you know, types of work, you know, work, like they might need a, a customer facing web app in a retail setting, you know, pretty easy, lightweight. You could even do that directly on a, on a, on a, something like a cloud run from Google or app runner from AWS and, and accept all the dependencies on the underlying infrastructure because it's fairly lightweight. And if it changes, you can tear it down and rebuild it. At the same time, there might be much more complex uh, operator platforms that you have to build to support a major automaker, for example. And in the, in the case that comes to mind, public use case with Audi uses OpenShift in that way. They, they consume OpenShift as a managed service from AWS and Azure, and then they build their own platform. Because to them, that's what they're delivering. They're delivering a, an Audi group platform that can handle compliance, security, factory floor automation, autonomous vehicles, whatever they need to do. So they want as much of that delivered to them as possible. So we see a lot of variation in terms of what kind of complexity organizations want to accept or are willing to accept. Some really want their hands on to extend that. Some want it ready-made. You know, they see this as another set of, of abstractions that, that gets them further away from the kinds of headaches they used to have when they ran their own data centers. And the, the, the pattern is not even, I don't think, settled even within industries because you can point to one industry like financial services and find completely different um, views to that. But the point being is that the, the core infrastructure around this with Kubernetes is mature enough to actually move people in any direction they would like to go. Yeah. I repeat this pattern all the time. And every time I repeat this pattern to a Forrester client, they're like, how did you know about my environment? But the typical Forrester client has somewhere between 1,500 to 2,400 applications. They've got somewhere between two to four data centers. They're on-prem. They're in the cloud. They're probably about 40% of their workloads have moved to the cloud. They claim to be cloud first, but then they have a mainframe running a whole bunch of critical applications. And then if you actually press them to identify their most mission critical applications and be able to map all their dependencies, they can't do it now. So I guess, you know, I hear about sort of this ability to just move a workload, optimize it for wherever it's, it's best suited. And there's this huge abstraction layer underneath. There's also a part of me that worries that, um, Enterprises aren't ready for that. Like they don't have the monitoring capabilities and the management capabilities to really keep track of all of that. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I think what we're seeing is 
targeted rollouts of things. I mean, there are some tech, there are some big financial services organizations that despite the reputation of that industry being more conservative, are just really cutting edge on this. They built their own platforms from from the beginning, the late 20 teens, as soon as they could, they could get their hands on it. There's a few like that. And I think what they've done is set a pattern for the rest of their industry in which holding out a model and showing a viability at scale, which is now leading a lot of people to decision points. And that does bring to a head a lot of things you just mentioned, Steph, in terms of the the mainframe dependencies. Do we just unplug that or are there ways yeah. to use Kubernetes workloads around that and like move some of those efforts out? And one, one creative way I hear people approaching this is you 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 get some of that data out of the mainframe using some integrations and, and some uh, typically based on Kubernetes and modern infrastructure, push that into a data lake and then do your analytics there on a modern platform. And so there's, there's different creative ways that people are doing that. And typically it's only when people have to modernize or move that they really do have to get down to it and discover their dependencies. In some cases, they will containerize and, 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 and do that to sufficiently to be able to move onto a modern platform without changing the underlying applications all that much, kind of containerizing the monolith or at least functionality around it. In some cases, they might choose to just rebuild, let, let that mature and wind down over time, you know, kind of the strangler pattern and build up something new. In terms of the big enterprises, I think you're hard pressed to find someplace where this is not actually somewhere going, you know, in terms of the POCs and so on. It has become the reference point for technology. Lee, can you talk about generative AI's impact on the future of cloud? I feel like I'd be remiss not asking that question on this episode. Right. It, it, I think it's twofold. One, and, and it's both the ways I talked before in terms of the AI in the cloud and of the cloud. In terms of the AI in the cloud and getting to the scale that most organizations need to build their models, the cloud's really ready-made. There's some organizations, big oil and gas come to mind, maybe some financials, who are going to you know, want to do that in their own data center. They have an interest in, in sovereignty and security and so on. So they're, they're willing to um, use the, the resources they have internally or build those out, acquire their own GPU resources. But for most organizations, they're going to need to lean on the cloud to be able to do that. Now, they have to sort out whether, whether they want to do that in terms of um, uh, all in cloud or whether they want to build the models there and do some of the, the, the rest of the, the job and uh, with JNI with, uh, on-prem. That's still being worked out. There are different patterns there as well. In terms of how cloud's going to operate overall in terms of JNI, we're already seeing uh, some players who are in the uh, uh, GitOps, like the, the Kubernetes-oriented automation space, who are using large language models to discover dependencies in multi-cloud environments and do some basic, you know, early AI decisioning based on on that basis. So, in other words, there's a problem in this cloud. Should we move the workload to that cloud, and so on? So that's already here, and I think you're going to see large language models start to transform platform operations. It's a term for us that we talk about in the cloud team a lot is platform operations enablement because, you know, it's been iterative and, and sometimes redundant and messy because of the different stages that cloud has gone through from early lift and shift, which is essentially a move to a data center to something that's now starting from the basis that this is going to be cloud native and modern. So there's a lot of cleanup to be done in operations, which the large language models are certainly going to help. And I want to circle back to what you, you asked about, Seth, Seth, in terms of AI ops and observability. When I see all the effort that's underway around AI ops 
And I see the efforts around issues like iPass and, and integrations and the, and the issues around that. I see those also as elements of people trying to compose their own cloud. So you've got your data, you've got this disparate type of environment that you describe, which I think it's common. Okay, I'm not going to rebuild everything. How do I get what I have to work better and leverage this technology where it's going to matter the most, especially, especially with AI? And I, I think that these are other elements that are kind of outside cloud. You know, you could say, argue that they're separate from cloud at one level, but are, are reinforced, mutually reinforcing with these overall dynamics. Yeah. So if we if we get to the the implications for businesses, I mean, we've gone over a few things. There's flexibility, right? Now they have the ability to move workloads wherever it's most optimal. Um, there's a reduction of concentration risk, at least. Um, you know, I would argue that other types of risk increase. Um, you know, for example, the complex the the complexity risk. How does what are the other benefits? Like, what are the business benefits? Like you mentioned, in some cases, in some industries, you have industries building their own platforms. Are, are they almost becoming their own type of SaaS provider and cloud provider because there's such an abstraction now um, that they're able to like build on? Uh, and I remember at one point we were talking about, you know, retail, for example, they were going to stop building on AWS because they saw them as competitors. And there were other industries too, like, I'm not going on AWS, they're about to compete with me. Have, have those fears gone away because of this, those concerns? I, uh, no, I think the fears are still there. And that's another driver towards composability. Because yeah, I agree with you totally. In fact, we, we did a, a cloud compliance checklist recently on this about how multi-cloud just actually uh, moves complexity, reduces single vendor concentration risk and moves it towards complexity. But what we see is organizations, especially when they're you know guided to by regulators to you know go in a, a multi-cloud environment, they have to accept that complexity. So they're always looking for ways to get better at that. So some of the um, large language model-based automations, uh, some of the AI ops efforts and, and around um, uh, integrations as well, are efforts to do this, but it's also you have entire platforms. I mentioned Salesforce and um, SAP stepping in to try to get in front of the hyperscalers and run at scale. We also see the same thing uh, uh, taking place with with uh, Snowflake and some of the industry clouds that they're putting out. So you're going to see other players kind of assume the existence of these of these cloud providers and and work on top of that. And now comes the new AI clouds. Some of these, you know, s- smaller players that are being funded by NVIDIA and others who are moving in to provide GPUs to various uh, enterprises and having already in- entered an environment where multi-cloud is the norm, it's actually possible for them to kind of almost go all the way around the typical infrastructure and IT teams, talk directly to the leadership, which is highly focused on AI and get some of those workloads. And because the organization has already come to grips, at least to some extent, I'm sure they'd like to be more mature with it, but they've already come to grips with multi-cloud in the sense that they have a kind of a cloud neutral, vendor agnostic governance framework and compliance framework. They've got a platform team that's capable of handling two, three, four clouds. It becomes easier for these newer players to come in. Now, I don't think they upset you know um, the hyperscalers uh, anytime soon, if ever, given the, the, the vast differences in scale. And the, and the concentration there, but they can get some very important workloads that are highly profitable. The hyperscalers have to maintain a high level investment to keep scaling out and go around the globe and support their existing customers. Now they have to invest a lot in GPUs as well. Even for these trillion dollar entities, that's not so easy when they've already um, got so much in the world's IT workloads. So this differentiation, this level of abstraction 
mean is quite meaningful for the business right now because they can start to move towards a, a, a best workload for the best right job at the right price in ways where they typically would have been mediated by whatever their primary cloud provider was. Now, that's still going to matter because your primary cloud provider might provide enough compelling discounts or other advantages and resources that you, you couldn't otherwise get. But certainly it opens up a, a set of discussions that, that weren't there just you know maybe a year, year and a half ago. So the other thing I'm curious about, you mentioned a couple of like small players like offering some cloud services. Yeah, they're, they're not going to become the next hyperscaler anytime soon, but do we finally actually have some additional competition for the hyperscalers? I mean, you have your tier one hyperscalers, right? The AWSs, the Azures, the Googles of the world. And then I think to some extent you've got Oracle, OVH, and some others. Uh, you mentioned SAP, Salesforce. But, you know, we haven't seen a lot of competition. Um, well, I guess some of, we also have some of the um, Asia-Pacific-based like cloud providers, but there hasn't been a ton of competition just because of the sheer infrastructure and scalability necessities of becoming a cloud provider. Right. And I don't see, you know, one can imagine a sovereign wealth fund or big pools of private equity cobbling together something and making that into a hyperscaler. But it's hard to see when hyper, where hyperscalers make money. AWS reports it directly. Microsoft and, and um, doesn't. And Google just uh, showed that it got into the black in terms of its operating expenses quite recently. So it's not necessarily the most profitable um way to get into the cloud business. You know, there's a lot of uh, commodity-based, even lost leader services and core cloud infrastructure that, you know, you have to have if you're going to be a hyperscaler, but aren't necessarily profitable. And that's where there is an opportunity, as you said, for companies like Oracle, which is, I wouldn't say is a hyperscaler based on market scale, but has the general cloud, enterprise cloud capabilities, has some important government and defense contracts and has uh, you know a heritage around data analytics, AI that they're that they're leveraging in a relationship with Nvidia. Uh, IBM's relation, uh, ownership of Red Hat gives them an angle. Uh, we saw a few months back the debut of OpenShift Data Science, which is kind of a Kubernetes-based model ops offering. Uh, there's an IBM d- uh, version of that, more or less, Watson X, which they announced a few months back, which is as they call it a multi-model, multi-cloud offering. So allows them to get into this disintermediation space, kind of assuming the existence of that bigger cloud infrastructure. So there's, there's lots of different levels of competition. And then you have these more focused AI clouds, which have uh, started to get some traction and media attention because they happen to have the GPUs on hand to be able to meet some of that demand that the hyperscalers couldn't. You know, back to the enterprise. Again, we talked about enterprises now have more choice. They're going to have reduction of concentration risk. They have a lot more flexibility, hopefully scale. Um, how do they go about thinking about their cloud strategy now? Um, I, I mean, I know from our prior research, for example, those who were multi-cloud to date, in most cases, it was an accident, right? <laughs> different parts of the business actually went after different cloud contracts without awareness of each other. There was a merger or an acquisition, and lo and behold, you ended up with multi-cloud. Maybe there were compliance requirements. But today, most of our clients are multi-cloud by accident, not by deliberate choice, so I'm curious too, like, so enterprises, do they rethink their decisioning? So right now I would say a lot of clients who haven't moved to the cloud already, I was just talking to a client last week about it. They're still doing like a traditional vendor selection process where they think, ah, I've got to figure out who's going to be my primary cloud. And then I'm going to center my entire cloud strategy and my platform team around that single vendor. Does this upend all of that? 
Uh, it's beginning to. I think that the, I, there, there's a certain comfort in having a primary, it, you know, because I think the, if, if you're in financial services, you know, your regulars kind of want it both ways. And so you have to deliver both. So you have to have a stable lead relationship, well understood and so on. But then you have to have somewhere else <laughs> that you can run and get data to. And the, the, the UK banking regulators are quite explicit about this and prescriptive. So you have to have an exit strategy from one cloud to another. Now, they don't say go to another cloud. It could be go to a private cloud or data center. So so that is still compelling for a lot of people. But what I always advise clients is, you you know, even if you are single cloud and primary cloud, overwhelmingly, you want to have a cloud vendor neutral agnostic approach to everything that matters, compliance, especially security. And so, and that you, you don't have three clouds and three cloud frameworks, you have one and you have to center on that basis. I think what you're going to see is that the, the, the big gap between what was primary before and everything else will start to blur as people are more comfortable with moving workloads from one to another. There's, a, there's one pattern, besides the accidental pattern that is now becoming strategic. Uh, you know, one, one also is that uh, companies who are already big Microsoft consumers with Windows, Windows Server and so on in their data centers have been drawn into Azure on, on the basis of going with M365 or Azure Active Directory and so on. And they may think of themselves as being an AWS primary shop, but if you look at their spend and the importance of, of Azure to their organizations, in fact, they're both. And Google has been able to uh, step into this mix with some targeted strategic appeals to various enterprises, which really prioritize a lot of uh, collaboration and partnership, like the arrangement they have with the, the CME group here in Chicago, where they invested a billion dollars in the organization in exchange for getting much more closely involved with uh, the financial infrastructure of the commodities and futures change exchanges. I'm also wondering as well, um, you know, historically you went after this primary cloud provider. I, a lot of clients would also rely on this primary cloud provider for resilience, even though <laughs> they're really not providing resilience. Like you still have to architect your availability across different zones. Um, so even if you did that, now that you have the ability to move these workloads to wherever it's most optimal, are enterprises prepared to do all of that again themselves? And I, I don't know, like this is where one bias comes in. So I think they need to, because I've actually been shocked over the last couple of years of just how much downtime there has been from the cloud providers. I mean, one refrain we used to all repeat over and over again is that the cloud providers were better at cybersecurity and better at resiliency than anything you could possibly do yourself. And then lately they're getting taken down by the most mundane things, configuration errors, uh, flooded data center in Paris. It's like, come on guys, these are, these are our problems. They're not supposed to be your problems. <laughs> so, um, like our enterprises taking resiliency back, like where they're going to be thinking about resiliency of the workloads and not relying so much on, on the cloud provider. I, I think they will. And they, they already are because, you know, there are ways you can, you know, you have like Kubernetes is the most resilient service from the cloud providers because it can, it's sort of regional by default and can be made multi-regional. Uh, you know, there's ways it doesn't come out of the box. People get less out of the box than they think. They have do have to architect applications and so on. But what we're starting to see is the all or nothing uh, mentality around business continuity and disaster recovery that came out of the data center. We had to over-engineer a lot of things, duplicate. Now people are starting to be more strategic into what really is critical. So that's the one that has to go fail over to another cloud. If it's my HR data, yeah, I can live without that for a few days, right? So there's there's people are understanding 
that there are differences between the kinds of things you really do need to, to max out with cloud resilience on. Having said that, the cloud providers have stepped up to assume the world's technical debt. And what would have been an isolated outage in a data center environment for one company now can affect entire industries. And you have complex dependency trees that if you have an outage in one service, it might affect you, even though you're not a consumer of that service. That's, that happened with AWS in the uh, December 2021 series of outages that they had. And I think the more that hyperscalers have to invest to keep up with one another and uh, keep in, up in the uh, GPU arms race, there's some risk that you know some of the investments or attention at least needed to some of these issues is probably might, might be less than what their customers would hope for. So there is a sense that resilience has to be part of uh, of the ownership that companies are, are taking for themselves. And I do think that does fit into the cloud composability model as well, because if you can if you can have your control of your your applications in uh, data, and you have good observability, and you have uh, good AI ops, your platform team is is enabled, and if you can make sure that that data can be recovered. And if you can make sure that if you if you have for some um, pure, some period of time a cloud provider is not available or is not trusted because of a cyber attack or something like that, you can still keep operating uh, your most critical systems. So I guess it kind of bring things back to the enterprise a bit when when I think about the wide ranging discussion we've had, the advantages for the enterprise in in the future of cloud and this cloud native approaches they have a lot more flexibility. Um, they can move workloads wherever it makes sense. They can optimize that that placement. Uh, they've got scale. <laughs> um, so flexibility, scale, they've got this reduction of concentration risk. It, it also sounds too like they, they just have the ability now to build on top of this any kind of workload, any kind of platform that could really differentiate the business. It could be something industry specific. It could be t- something totally unique to the business. But now, because every, all of the hard part has been abstracted to them, they can really focus on the development aspects of, of the software and everything that differentiates the business. So I, I think I get all the real technical advantages, which translate into to some serious business advantages as well. So knowing all that, what advice would we give to clients right now about how they need to rethink their cloud strategy? I think what they want to do is look at how Kubernetes and cloud native is probably going to be the best platform they have for any kind of model ops that they want to do, whether it's in the cloud or on premises. And they can understand that also Kubernetes is a bridge from the public cloud as well as the data center. You see more cloud at customer type offerings from the public cloud, as well as some of the multi-cloud container platforms, which give you flexibility in a hybrid type of scenario. So these, this kind of platform of platforms basis for innovation is something we see again and again, a lot on data. And I think that's only gonna accelerate with the uh, interest in large language model AI. Uh, of course, that's gonna coexist in many organizations for some time to come with you know older virtualization, virtual machine type environments, mainframe and so forth. But in a sense, it starts to set the pace for new developments and become a focal point for a lot of the data integration and optimization uh, in platform operations generally that they're going to need to be able to adapt uh, frequently. So so essentially you're building a kind of a takeoff um, uh, ramp for innovation with these new technologies and they're here today. And I think it's significant that even some big vendors who who you don't necessarily see inside what they're doing, but they make a point like SaaS via platform runs on 
Kubernetes on any public cloud. Now, that doesn't necessarily matter to you. You're just consuming SaaS via, but they thought it was important enough to communicate that to their customers because it conveys to them that they've actually got a roadmap here. They've got capabilities or on the modern tech. They don't have dependencies on, on, on an older stack of technology. And I think that's, that's one indicator uh, of many that we can look at that, that shows the direction of travel. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Lee. Thank you for having me. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.